the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, August 15th. And if it's Monday, it's Media Monday with the boss man, John Kelly. Today, John and I discuss Axios's big sale to Cox Enterprises and the $500 million value of smart brevity. And an activist investor just took a big stake in the New York Times. Will it help them boost their already successful subscriber business? Plus, John shares his favorite New York Times cooking app recipes. Just kidding. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by SleepMe comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy monday everybody if it's monday i'm joined by john kelly uh media entrepreneur new jersey resident (laughs) cut that part (laughs) um john uh you know i think one reason i like doing media monday with you is i've got lots of like media takes, but you, you, you're really savvy about the business side of a lot of media news. And one of the big stories last week, maybe the biggest media story last week was that Axios has been acquired. Who bought them and why? So they were acquired by Cox Enterprises, which I think a lot of people our age think about Cox as a, a cable company, but I don't know how much they're actually in that business anymore. You know, cable has sort of all been, been rolled up. It seems like everything is basically, you know, Spectrum or Optimum or or Chart or just you know the most the most hated companies in America besides like <laughs> the you know cigarette companies. Um, but they own a lot of local papers still, and I think that this is part of their thesis to go local. You know, they were the lead investor in Axios' Series D that valued them less than a year ago at four hundred million. When that happened, I actually saw that as a, a pretty strong signal that Cox was going to be the likely acquirer. I assume they cleared out the cap table, probably uh, bought some previous investors out. I don't know that, but I, that, 
you know, that's how these things often do work. And Axios was sprinting at the time beyond its core news gathering newsletter business towards a SaaS software as service uh, play, which is this Axios HQ. Um, it's like a software for, for basically writing newsletter communications and this local news play where they, they realized they could probably get into a couple dozen markets quickly by getting an influential local journalist and um, penetrate them similar almost to like with a different business model to how The Athletic actually grew market by market. And also disclosure, everyone's friends with everyone here. Uh, consider Mike a, a true friend of mine and, and Jim Van Hattie CEO is a, a, a media friend. But lo and behold, because you did ask a, a question here, uh, <laughs> Axios gives Cox the opportunity to accelerate into local news. And if you've ever raised money for a media startup, you will know that local news is at the intersection of two great media and investor trends. It is something that investors who have a lot of money really want to fix because they know it's broken, but they also know that there is a significant financial opportunity. People care about what is going on in their communities. They are willing to support it. There are a lot of businesses that want to be in front of those readers. And I think Cox feels like Axios accelerates that. You know, they, they own the, I think the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is probably their most well-known property. And Axios gives them the global patina of the brand and also the ability to penetrate these regions. Axios launched a, a Richmond product where I'm from. And, you know, everyone I know in Richmond is now reading it because there's just like, it's just of course. a lane. But part of the lane that it's filling is the Axios format. This is where we have to give Jim Vandehei and Roy Schwartz and Mike Allen credit. Axios has felt essential to a lot of people in a way that, that other news organizations just don't every day. And the long kind of New York Times 5,000 word article feels like, like homework to people. It's like long and larded with phrases and you're trying to impress your bosses. And <laughs> Axios is just thinking about the consumer. They're like, here's some important information you need to know today. It'll take you three minutes to read it. That's a very powerful product. And they're doing that in local markets too. And I think that's important. You make a, a great point and I'll push it even further. Not only is it an incredibly useful format innovation and actually it's sort of cool that I think observers of Allen, Vandehei and Schwartz could sort of see them coming up with it over time uh, when they were at Politico. I think Politico Playbook was like their sort of starter marriage at what smart brevity is. And I think that there's a certain point where I, I noticed maybe a year or two into Axios' journey when a little trademark showed up next to Smart Brevity and they could see that they were really onto something. But it is a format that has not been innovated upon for literally a century. I mean, the news article that we know started in the era of like telegrams and, you know, where you had Top to write in, in single sentence paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but literally like the format of like write a sentence, you know, that's one paragraph, you know, John spoke to Peter, Peter spoke to John. That was because these were being transmitted and they, they only popped up one line at a time. It's extraordinary how little that's changed. And you know it's desperately in need of change when the New York Times publishes the Trump tax story and then has to publish three other stories explaining what's actually in the Trump tax story. You know, like that's a sort of self-admitted uh, recognition that these forms have to be innovated upon. Yeah. You triggered a memory for me. I was having a cup of coffee in Washington maybe a year ago with a very, like, capital V, capital S, very serious uh, Washington journalist. One of the probably, like, five or ten most well-known people there. Someone who's run a huge organization. I don't want to be obnoxious, but... You can say that it's Steve Bannon. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Uh, exactly. Um, so I had bad bo. Uh, there was donut, uh, wore three shirts. donuts in his hair. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, this naturally came up. Uh, I think particularly because a lot of people saw Jim as a former journalist who became a CEO and and had never seen that kind of transformation before. So as we were discussing Axios, I brought up what I thought was the terminal value of the company and its its presumed future uh, transactional value, which I actually, I guessed that it was going to trade one day for around $500 million. I, I undersold them by $25 million. And according to my back of the envelope math, that was going to make these founders a lot of money, you know, generational <laughs> wealth. And this person's eyeballs flew out of their skull and into their tea. And I, it, it's interesting to me, um, Washington is not a, it's a sharp elbow town, but it's not a money town, mm-hmm. you know, and the conversations you have there are really different than the ones you have in New York. And it was just interesting to me that Axios got slagged by a lot of people in certain kinds of DC circles for the format, and no one actually realized the extraordinary enterprise value that they were creating. And um, and that's a shame on Washington, and frankly, it's why the trio who created Axios also created Politico, and the guys who worked for them, you know, created Punchbowl. Like, if you innovate in DC, you actually have a pretty powerful swim lane because it's such an institutionalist media environment. Yeah, it's institutionalist is right. I mean, like I felt that when I left CNN to join Snap, like people just didn't understand the career ladder there is, you know, network cable news or, you know, end up at the Washington Post, New York Times. But like people aren't thinking about the business upside of these jobs and and, and the lane that exists in media um, if you're if you're smart about it as a journalist, which gets to something else I wanted to give them credit for equity. One reason I like Axios is they have taken care of their employees. Um, and I think a lot of employees, especially some early ones are going to journalists, like working journalists, we're going to make some coin off of this, this deal. And, you know, if you think about someone out there might correct me if I'm wrong, but Politico got acquired for a billion dollars by Axel Springer. Like, I don't know how many Politico journalists like made equity off of that acquisition. Like I assume not very much, certainly not their early employees who have since gone on to other things. Like they're not clinging to any kind of like RSU or stock options from that deal. And like, good on Axios for making journalists have a piece of of the value here. And I I just like applaud them for that because a lot of news organizations, some are just legacy and aren't built that way to give out equity. But, you know, moving forward, journalists are creating the product and they should be rewarded for it. I love when you... um you show off your uh, your snap knowledge, uh, the, the the restrictive stock <laughs> units. You're, you're totally you're totally right. And yes, I, I don't think that anyone at Politico had an, an ISO, which would have been the, the sort of option that employee would have gotten. But you are hitting something on the head that I want to transparently admit that right when I uh, left the hive and was working with TPG, I the first thing I did was uh, as mentioned in, in the backstory of the weekend, I went down to Arlington to meet with. Jim and Mike, who are really generous their time, and they shared a lot of private information. But one thing that I, I will say that they shared is um, they said, make sure that you um, incentivize all your employees with equity. It's a powerful uh, accelerant, and um, they don't get enough credit for the the, the wealth that they're cumulatively, uh, that they've created, because you're absolutely right. People stay there because they believed in the culture, because they knew that they could amass serious financial gain. All right, John, we'll be right back and we're going to talk about an activist investor taking a stake in the New York Times. Quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back, everyone. Um, John, the other big media story that broke late last week is that in hedge fund, is this right? Hedge fund called Value Act. I hadn't heard of them, but I also don't speak business very well, despite your flattering words earlier. Um, <laughs> took a 7% stake in the New York Times company. This is being framed as an activist investor taking a big stake in the New York Times. What is this about? Well, we can call Value Act, which is Jeffrey Ubin's activist investment vehicle or, or hedge fund. Gotcha. Okay. Own 7% of the Times. Now, it's important to remember the Times has dealt with activists before. In fact, our homie Scott Galloway yeah. was actually on the board of the New York Times company. Represent, that guy's had so many lives. Uh, but at the time, he was representing an activist hedge fund that he was, I think, a partner at that owned 20% of the company. And this was like back when the Times owned all kinds of crazy shit, including, I believe, a piece of the Red Sox, I think a piece of the Hancock building. Boston Globe. The Globe, exactly. So they want to accelerate growth in subscription. They want to more aggressively bundle products. Dylan reported on this. They offered a pretty anodyne statement. I'm speculating here a little bit, but if you're a senior executive at the Times, your compensation package probably correlates with the stock price. And I think Value Act is absolutely trying to accelerate, you know, the momentum and the lane the Times has. Like one of the things that this deal, which was announced on Thursday, really threw into stark relief for me is just how much bigger the Times has gotten than anyone in its peer set. Like a couple of years ago during the, you know, peak Trump insanity, there were all these times and post comparisons. And I, part of that was just because of like the nonstop news breaking machine that, that was taking place in Washington. But these are like completely different companies. The Times is, you know, a comparatively large company with all these assets like Serial, The Athletic, Autumn, the, um, the audio service that, that you know, uh, automates uh, articles that you, you can listen to now and, you know, Wordle and et cetera, et cetera. And the Post is like, the Post plus Arc, which is this very um, potent uh, software that it's like a CMS software that they're probably going to take out to to market one day. They're, you just realize how, how much bigger the Times has gotten. And I think that they actually probably are um, are welcoming 
to some extent, this investor because it will allow them to move faster than the semi-glacial pace that the Times usually has to to move at to, you know, so they, they deal with their own internal politics. Yeah, from my reading about Value Act, which by the way, like, this na- it sounds like a, like a reverse mortgage like company, on, doesn't like, Fox it? Fox News or something. Like, what Value Act? If someone from Value Act called you on the phone, you'd hang up immediately. Dude, <laughs> you know? what? I, I was. I was <laughs> That's the secret of finance, though, is have an anodyne name on the outside and, and have killers on the inside. Exactly, exactly. But you know, from my reading about them, is they've taken stakes in companies before, um, like Nintendo or Microsoft, but they're like, as much as they're activist-y, I guess they're known for sort of working well behind the scenes with the various companies they take a stake in to sort of, you know, move the ball forward and increase the value rather than being like, we're going to go to court and take over your company and stop you from your liberal agenda in <laughs> New York Times. As you said, like the New York Times is, dude, it's like a lifestyle brand. It's like if you're a college-educated center-left person on this country, you have the crossword app on your iPhone, you get your recipes from the New York Times cooking app, you play Wordle, you know, you read Maggie Haberman's pieces in the Times, you proudly brandish your tote bag, mug, t-shirt, whatever, you know, the Times just like is a full spectrum media content lifestyle company in a way that the Washington Post is not right now. It doesn't mean they're not doing great journalism, but like most of the New York Times business, it feels like beyond just the newspaper. Like when I worked at the Times, there was all kinds of internal head banging against the wall that they outpaced competitors in everything. Like the average Times you know, consumer was richer than the average Vogue consumer. They spent more on travel than the average Carnegie Traveler you know, consumer, but they couldn't communicate any of that. And, um, and now they sort of can through all these different products that they have. Yeah, and so... The, the thing that Value Act wants to do, um, other than reverse mortgage, is <laughs> they basically want to like communicate to consumers that the Times has these bundled subscription offers. I guess like they're basically saying you could subscribe to news, games, cooking, The Athletic for a certain price point and you know, if they communicate that better to, to the audience, then they can grow their subscriber number. They currently have like 9 million subs. They're trying to get to 15 million, I believe, uh, in like five more years. Is that a growth strategy there? Like who is going to want to like sign up for the, the bundle versus the individual stuff? Me, you, or, or like random mom in Des Moines? Well, the Times, right, they're, they're, I think that they're figuring out how do they go, they spend the last five years figuring out how to get to 10. Now they're figuring out how do you get to 15 and then you know, maybe one day 25 million that is. The answer to any of those questions runs through non-news consumers, right? It runs through gaming addicts, people who love to shop. You know, if you, if you went to uh, Uzbekistan and met a farmer and you said, what, you know, what, what does the New York Times do? He'd say, yeah, it's a newspaper. I don't think he'd say Wordle. They need to get to those ambitious numbers. They need to do things that they're not known for doing and they need to, and they need to go after audiences that are non-core news-consuming audiences. And I think ValueX's premise is pretty simple here, which is hack to growth in those channels and find ways to bundle your products. And, and I think probably price is also a part of bundling. You know, I think right now, the this is the clear and articulate strategy because at least to my like novice appraisal, the time stock seems like it is it does correlate a bit to subscriber growth in addition to EBITDA. And also we should say 7% is a lot but it's the original dual 
shareholder company, you know, now it's very, that's very common in Silicon Valley, which means that you can't do anything crazy unless you have the family or the founder involved here. So if they came in and said like, okay, great, we want to hire Tucker Carlson, take over the op-ed page, they'd be defenestrated pretty quickly. Yeah, that would get the Ox Soulsberger veto pretty fast. That would. All right, John, have a great week, man. Um, don't drink the tap water. I heard there's polio going around <laughs> New York. Yikes. Be safe out there. You hang in there too, Peter. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 